you so much. Praise the Lord for that. What a great reminder for us this morning. Well, we called today Tailgate Sunday, and it was our trick just to get everybody here. One Sunday, all generations, everybody plugged into Sunday school. We're going to, hopefully, a lot of you are going to join us to sell, uh, for a time of fellowship uh, after church this morning at our Tailgate lunch. So that's really why it's Tailgate Sunday. Uh, and I saw some folks wearing their uh, team colors. I got to get a picture with Cocky out front, so I hope that you've enjoyed the day. My kids love watching this show called American Ninja Warrior on TV. I don't know if you've seen this show before. There's another uh, version of this called Ultimate Beastmaster. It's about the same thing, but they've just gotten into it um, all summer long. And um, if you don't know about the show, it's uh, athletes, competitors who go out on these obstacle courses and try to complete them. They get increasingly more and more difficult. And so it's fun to watch, but I feel like there's two different folks that watch this show. There are those who watch it and go, oh my goodness, those people are incredible. And then there are those who say, oh, I think I want to try that. Well, my boys fall into the latter category. They love watching the different people attempt the course, but they just can't sit and watch. And so sometimes they can't go outside to do all the climbing, so they've come up with a different way inside of the home. And they climb up on the chair rail at the edge of the wall, and they use the door frames, and they crawl through the house. They get up on the banister, swing from the ceiling fan from, you know, sofa to chair. Then they come down the steps without touching the stairs. So they lean against the wall with feet on the rail of the chair, of the stairs coming down. They don't have permission to do this. They just do it anyways. And the last straw was they decided to try pull-ups on the uh, curtain rod in the shower. And they... Uh, realize that they're heavier than a shower curtain and um, so my wife laid down the law I was probably quietly just applauding as they were <laughs> just kidding but this whole experience really typifies my kids because they uh, my boys just can't sit and watch you know if they're a baseball games Evan will inevitably go get a baseball glove he just wants to start throwing they watch football they want to go outside and pass they watch basketball they want to take you know go to the court with it because sometimes just watching is not enough. As a, at a football game, everybody has a role to play. You know, of course, there's the competitors on the field, but there's coaches, there's officials, all kinds of personnel who ensure the, uh, you know, the integrity of the game, the success of the game. There's band members and cheerleaders that kind of bridge the gap between the competitors and those that are watching in the stands. But most of the people at a football game are doing what? They're watching the game. They're in the stands. Sometimes they're trying to coach from there, but that's what they're doing up in the stands. Well, I think this serves as a great challenge for us this morning that forces us to consider the question, when it comes to the Christian life, am I just spectating or am I participating? I want you to really put that at the forefront of your mind as we begin this message. Am I a spectator or am I a participant? Am I here at church to just watch, or am I here to participate? Am I just walking through life as a spectator of all the things that God is doing in me and around me, or am I participating in his grand mission to save the world? We're going to be looking in Matthew this morning, and Matthew is one of the four gospel writers who records for us how people reacted to Jesus when they saw him in the flesh. And in the fourth chapter... Jesus moves to Capernaum, which is a city in the Galilee, 
And it's there that he begins his ministry. Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus begins that amazing ministry that we know today. I want us to look this morning at verses 23 of chapter 4, and then we're going to read through verse 2 of chapter 5. As we consider this charge this morning to get in the game, the text is going to be on the screen, but it would be even better if you have your Bibles, you can join me there. Matthew 4, verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. As we see in this text this morning, crowds gathered to hear Jesus. They had heard of what he had done, they had seen the miraculous, and so they were intrigued by this person. They were drawn to observe you know, him deliver the powerful words and uh, perform these miraculous deeds. And what I want to suggest to each of you this morning is that it is not enough to merely spectate from among the crowd. God is calling for disciples to get in the game and follow as participants in his grand ministry to save the world. So how can we become participants? Well, to understand what God is calling you to, we're going to look further at this passage, and I'm going to focus first here at verses 23 through 25 as we look at the object of this so-called game that we come to this morning. In verse 23, Matthew tells us Jesus spends time going throughout all Galilee. Now, many of you will be familiar and know that Galilee is a region in Israel. It's in the northern part, and it represents a lot of towns, a lot of cities. And this is the focus of Jesus' ministry. We, uh, I already told you he moved there, to, or at least to a city there, Capernaum, because his family's from Nazareth. But he moved there. Uh, the, the, um, he called most of his apostles from the Galilee. This is where the bulk of his teaching is done. In the cities there, we know he does it on the sea, Lake uh, Gennesaret, the sea that's there in Galilee. He performs these mighty miracles there. The bulk of his teaching is probably done here in this region. And he's traveling along the Galilee, and it says, and teaching in their synagogues. Well, you know Jesus is Jewish, and the overwhelming majority of those that heard his teaching were nationalistic and religious Jews. And so he would enter into their churches, he would enter into their synagogues there, uh, which would be his as well, because he's Jewish, and he would teach. And so what is Jesus teaching in the synagogues? Well, he's teaching the scriptures. Uh, of course, for us, we know it as the Old Testament, but that was his Bible. That was the scriptures. And so he would take and read from it. I'm not going to read this morning, but Luke actually tells us how he takes off the scroll, takes the scroll of Isaiah, opens it up, and reads from it. And he says, now what you've heard has been fulfilled in my reading it. And so Jesus prioritizes the word. It's a reminder to us of the priority of learning and hearing the word, both taught and applied to our lives. In fact, some of you are probably turned off by the Old Testament, but that's Jesus' scripture. Some say they're red-letter Christians, but Jesus prioritized the Old Testament. 
But Jesus came with something more than just the Old Testament. Verse 23 says, he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So what is the gospel of the kingdom? Gospel is a, from a Greek word, euangelion. Uh, you probably know this, but that word means good news. That's what gospel is. It's good news. It's essentially what we read in verse 17. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the, the long-awaited moment for the Jewish people has arrived. The age of the kingdom of God is dawning now in the ministry of Jesus. Now, we know that the real good news is who Jesus is. He's not just some good teacher. He's not just some miracle worker. He's not just a prophet. He's the Son of God. And he's come into the world to make a way so that men and women can come to faith and be in a right relationship with God. Nobody knew what it would cost him. We already sang in our song this morning of the power of the cross. Nobody knew the suffering he would endure at that point in order to uh, lead us into God's heavenly kingdom. So in addition to all of this teaching, Jesus is doing the miraculous. It says he is uh, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. Verse 24 tells us there were diseases and pains that were healed, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, so basically, every kind of affliction, every kind of sickness, he even says those who were demon-possessed were being set free from Jesus. It, it categorizes that in that way. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus is not setting bones here. He's not responding to their pains by making compounds or uh, potions or uh, providing medicine or essential oils. He's not doing that. It's not what it says. He is drawing on the supernatural power to demonstrate authority over the powers of this world. He's healing every disease and sickness is what the scripture says. That's a reminder to us that there is nothing outside of his authority. I know that's a real promise for a lot of you. Some of you dealing with sicknesses and ailments and um, diagnosis or prognosis this week. And it's a reminder. We go to God for healing. Thank the Lord he provides medicine for us and those who practice medicine. But God heals. Jesus heals here. And we also see that Jesus has compassion. His heart is broken for those around him who have all kinds of needs. He recognizes their suffering and he is there to heal their diseases. So what we see happening here is that the forces of hell are being put on notice that God has sent his son to claim what is rightfully his. Sin has wreaked havoc. Lives are in chaos. The people of this world were hopeless. Then by the power and favor of God, Jesus enters into the mess and he paves the way for men and women to have a right relationship with God, to find healing, to find hope. So the message that we proclaim and respond to is that Jesus has come. I think sometimes church activities, uh, things that Christians say, maybe how we uh, uh, interpret or misapply the scriptures can confuse people about what the message of Christianity is really about. The object of this game of life is Jesus. That's it. To know him and to make him known. So Christianity is not some political movement. Of course, we want Christians to engage in political life, especially where that's allowed. We, we should be involved in the political process. 
It's, Christianity is not a way to govern people. It's not a way to hold a nation together. It's not a way for us to distinguish certain nations of the world, Christian nations and those that are not. It's not something that we can inherit. We don't receive Christianity as just kind of a gift from our parents and grandparents. Christianity is not about traditions. It's not about buildings. It's not about cleaning up and coming to church on a Sunday. It's not about certain songs that we sing. Or it's not about excluding others. Christianity is about a person. It's about who Jesus is and what he has done. So if we're communicating something different, we need to be careful about our messaging. Because our message is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And it came, it's near through the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus has come. He's come to make all things right. He's torn down the dividing wall between us and God. He uh, has offered the gift of a relationship with God. And I like how one person puts it. He says, the message is that when it comes to the kingdom of God, everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, but anything's possible. And why is that? It's because of Jesus. So Matthew 4 described what might be the same situation today. Jesus is preaching, he's performing miracles, and a lot of people are intrigued by this. So they start to surround him, they start to gather, and these people could be described, I would say, as spectators of Jesus. So let's look at verse 25 and these so-called spectators of Jesus' life and ministry. Verse 25 says, large crowds followed him. In fact, we know they came from beyond the region where he was in Galilee. They came from Jerusalem. They came from Syria. They came from the Decapolis on the other side of the sea. They came from the other side of the Jordan River. So they came from everywhere because they heard what this miracle worker was doing. And they wanted to see it, just as you would want to see something like this. And the crowds become a real key character in Matthew's story that we call the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 4 there in verse 25, large crowds followed him. That's the first time we read this character, the crowds, in Matthew's Gospel. And you'll read about the crowds no less than 40 more times in his gospel, all the way up until the point whenever Jesus is there being uh, uh, sentenced or being considered for trial by Pilate. And the scripture says that Pilate walked out and he says he washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent. So it just appears all throughout Matthew's gospel, a key character there. So the crowds come to hear Jesus' teaching. They bring friends who have uh, sickness, who need healing. They're amazed by what Jesus says, by what he does. They call him a prophet. They see him as unique. They're present with him on a lot of occasions, although they're there, not there all the time. And it seems to be that they only come to him when they have a need or when it's convenient as he's passing through town. Additionally, the crowds are pretty fickle. In, at the end of Jesus' ministry on Palm Sunday, it says the crowds gather there by the road and they are throwing down cloaks in front of his this colt that he's riding in they're waving palm branches and they're saying Hosanna because they think Jesus is going to take over the throne he's going to restore the throne of Israel and just five days later on Good Friday that same the crowds have gathered there where Jesus is on trial and they're shouting crucify him so the crowds or the way of the crowd is to really drift down what Jesus calls a broad road Nevertheless, Jesus is concerned for the crowd. In fact, in Matthew 9, verse 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them 
because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus' heart breaks for the so-called crowd. He loves the crowd. He's crazy about the crowds of people, the masses of people. It's not just the elites. It's not those in authority. The crowds, the masses. The crowds do a number on his heart, not because he needs the attention, but because he saw the dignity and need of every person who's in the crowd. He was concerned about the direction they were heading. He said at one point that he longed to gather them together like a hen would gather chicks under her wings. He saw and was filled with compassion. And here in Matthew 5 we read, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. So he went up on, a, on the mountain to find a place where he could see and where he could be seen. And then it says, and after he sat down. Now you would think he must be done then. You know, that's what we imagine. But uh, for the Jewish people at this time, the uh, place of authority was to take a seat. Because the idea is I got a lot to say, so I'm going to sit down. But y'all would prefer that I stand up because I'll wear out. You know, if I sit down, I could keep going for a while longer. And y'all probably don't have time for that. But Jesus takes a seat and he begins, that, that signals he's about to teach. And so uh, verse 2 actually concludes by saying, he opened his mouth and began to teach them. And the particular message that he's about to preach or to teach is what we know of as the Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon ever preached. Now we're not going to look at the content of that sermon. It's incredible. It'd be a great thing to go home and read as you consider getting in the game this week. But I want you to see how they responded to this sermon. In chapter 7, verse 28, it says, When Jesus had finished these words, that's the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So there's something different about the way that Jesus communicated that kind of piques their interest, that they're intrigued by. Well, the default mode for our souls is to remain part of the crowd rather than consider if there's anything more for us than just being spectators. That's the default mode. That's how every one of us walks into a room like this. There's an interesting moment in the book of Acts at the end of Jesus' ministry. He is, uh, he's been resurrected. He's walked the earth for 40 days. And then in Acts 1, verse 10, it talks about how he ascends into heaven. And it says in verse 10, And as they were gazing intently, these are his followers, into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So these followers were tempted to just sit and say, I wonder what might happen next. Wouldn't that be, I mean, it's an amazing thing to imagine. Jesus going up in the, and they're just, what is going to happen next? But the message becomes real clear. Y'all, he's coming back. So you better get to work. You better get in the game. Well, Jesus understood that most people live their lives as part of the crowd. And this remains true today. That's why most people at a football game are there to watch. Well, at the beginning of this message, I asked each of you to search yourself and ask, and I a spectator who comes to church just to watch? Am I somebody who goes through life just seeing what God is doing and what he's doing in me and around me? Or am I just a member of the crowd? Now, I think that here at church we can mislead you into thinking that what we want at church is just one more person in the pew, just one more person in the crowd. 
You know, you think, well, I'm just supposed to come and listen. But that is not what we at the church, and surely it's not what God wants from somebody. We're happy for people to start as a part of the crowd. But that's not the finish line. So after, our, our, so the question is, are you a spectator when it comes to Jesus in his life, his great mission, the things that he's doing, the things that he's done, or have you said yes to follow Jesus? And if so, if you've said yes to follow Jesus, his return is near, so we better get to work. We better get in the game. So just prior to Jesus delivering his Sermon on the Mount, um, Matthew identifies two groups that are gathered near him. There was more than just the crowd. In chapter 5, verse 1, there at the beginning, it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So there's two groups here. There's not just the crowds. There's also his disciples. A crowd spectates, but a disciple participates. A disciple is somebody who's used to be, uh, who used to be part of the crowd, but somewhere along the way, Jesus kind of gets under their skin, and they get, you know, can't get loose of him, and they have to be around him all the time. But they don't just aren't satisfied with just sitting there and listening. Now they want to do what he says. They want to be able to think like he thinks. He want to be able to see the world like he sees the world. They want to live like he lives his life. So in the verses just prior to this passage, we read how Jesus calls the first disciples. In verse 18, chapter 4, it says, Now as Jesus was walking by that sea of Galilee, he sees two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So four different people are called from among the crowd to come follow Jesus. And did you notice that repeated phrase? How did they react to Jesus' call? Immediately they responded. That's what it says about uh, Peter and Andrew. He calls them to follow. Immediately they left and followed him. James and John, he called to them. Immediately they left and followed him. Well, when Jesus called, they went without hesitation. Now, don't just skip over this. They were leaving behind significant responsibilities. They have livelihoods. There's family members they're leaving behind, responsibilities of all sorts, all different kinds. But they discovered there's something too important to just sit and listen. I got to do you know, it's like watching the baseball game. I need to get my glove. I want to get in the game now. Now, I do need to point out here, because a lot of times I read this and I think, that's so strange. They never saw this guy. And all of a sudden, a stranger walks by and says, hey, come follow me. And they go. Well, the truth is, they, they knew of Jesus. They had interacted with him. And so this wasn't necessarily the very first time they responded, at least not for all four. They, they, they had interacted, and they had enough time to consider the message of Christ. And when he called, they said, I'm going. And the point here is they didn't hesitate. They could tell God's up to something. Craig Blomberg writes, When Jesus calls a person to discipleship, there is no excuse for delay or disobedience. So these four men counted themselves among the crowd until this particular moment in their lives. So Jesus' grand mission for you is to leave the crowd and follow him 
as a disciple. You know, when Jesus preached, he didn't just preach to be heard. He expected people to respond, to essentially ask themselves a question. Do I believe this? Do I believe that what he's preaching is true? Do I believe he's the Messiah? Do I believe that he's come to bring life? Do I believe that he cares about me and is offering a relationship with me? Well, just like the day when Jesus first preached the Sermon on the Mount, I recognize there's two different groups here in this room joining us by television and online. There are those who are disciples. You've responded to Jesus. You're following him. And there are those who are just part of the crowd, spectators. And so if today you were to admit that, yes, I'm just a spectator, I want to ask you for a second to really consider the message of Jesus. As I've already said, this message is about a person. It's about Jesus. So what are you going to do with him? See, he didn't just come to be a good speaker, a good teacher. He didn't just come to be a prophet or a miracle worker. Jesus came as Lord. He came as the linchpin to God's plan to rescue the world. And the scriptures are clear that we're dead in our sins, but Jesus has come to give us life. Through his death on this cross and his triumph over the grave, he offers us the opportunity to find forgiveness, to be, for, to be redeemed, to be made right before God, and to be in relationship with him. He gives us the promise of eternal life. But that doesn't come by just watching from afar. It, it takes a response. It takes saying yes. John 1.12 says, To as many as received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so that means you've got to receive him. You've got to believe on him to be counted as a disciple. So Jesus' grand vision for you is to leave the crowd and to come follow him as a disciple. Now, the primary task described to the first disciples were to become fishers of men. Evie Hill was a great preacher, and he made the statement that the church throughout the centuries has struggled with the temptation to be keepers of the aquarium instead of fishers of men. So for those of you who claim to be disciples, I want to say that we cannot just be a church that's concerned about keeping the aquarium clean or about rescuing fish who are just out of an aquarium. We're to be called out into the deep where those that are hopeless and need Jesus. That's what differentiates a disciple from being part of the crowd because we obey. He calls us and we go. We respond. We stop just sitting by saying, when are you people going to hear the message of Jesus? We share the message of Jesus. So are you willing to be a participant rather than just a spectator and do what Jesus says? We have a perfect visual aid for this every year, this time of year. Because every weekend, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people pile into stadiums. Millions of people sit down in front of TV and they watch people play. It's fun to watch people play, but it's a completely different thing to walk onto the field ready to play. So Jesus is calling you onto the field this morning. This church needs participants. This church needs followers of Jesus, not just spectators. So for those of you who are here this morning, and you are a member of this church, you're a believer in Christ, you've settled here, so what's your next step? What's the next step that Jesus is calling you to in this great game of the Christian life? Well, I think there's four things that every believer here at First Baptist Church, those who call this church home, ought to do. So maybe it's one of these four things. The first thing is everybody here ought to be plugged into a small group, a Sunday school class of some sort, where you're growing in faith, where you're encouraging one another, 
It's in Sunday school we're able to provide care for those who have needs. It's there that we find fellowship that we're looking for. So are you plugged into a Sunday school class or a small group of sorts? If not, there's a connection desk right outside in the foyer. And after this, you ought to go get connected. We have new classes starting. Maybe you can be an early commitment uh, to those new classes those are, that are starting. Second, everybody who calls this church home ought to have a place where they can serve. A place where they can step up to serve. Some of you do that through Sunday school. You're a teacher or a leader in your Sunday school class. Some of you do it through different ministries. But there's a place for everybody here. Serving in our children's ministry. Encouraging those kids down there. Being involved in our student ministry. Being a small group leader. Working with our college students who come into town to provide host homes for them. Host families so that you can encourage them. Maybe just get to know them while they're here out of town. Staying here in Columbia. Working with our internationals. Those in our community whose English is a second language for them. And they want American Christian friends. It could be by being a part of our orchestra and choir. This Wednesday is a great opportunity to say, I'll do it. I'll be there. Mr. Steve would love you for doing that, and I would too. Third thing is for everybody that's a member here ought to be a giver. By giving, you allow God's work through the ministries of this church to continue. And finally, First Baptist Church need to live on mission. God had, Jesus had compassion for the masses. Well, there's a place for you to serve as well. Maybe helping with our ministry to the homeless once a month. Maybe it's being a part of our good news clubs that go into the public schools. Whatever it might be, there's a place for you to serve. One way is just where you're planted to be a witness for God, a witness for Christ. Jesus says he came into this world that they, that means you and me, that they may have life and have it more abundantly. The abundant life is for the man in the arena, not the spectator in the stands. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this word. We thank you that you are still calling us. God, and I pray as people are making decisions right now, that they would respond to you, Holy Spirit. Maybe today is the day that they'll say yes to you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to have a time of invitation. If God's speaking to your heart, I hope you'll respond. I know some of you, today is the day you need to make a decision for joining this church, following in believer's baptism, saying yes to Jesus, that I want to be a disciple. Whatever it is, as God's working in your heart, I encourage you to respond. Our choir's going to sing. I'm going to invite you now to stand. As they sing, you respond. <laughs>